Samuel Golding in an early copy of one of his novels. It didn't make it to the final revision. He said that, he said, I do not have, how did he put it? He said, I do not, he said, I do not trust a man who is zealous for nothing. I do not trust a man. I love seeing you back. Ah! This couple helps me preach, and I've missed them. Samuel Golding said, I do not trust a man who is zealous for nothing. And I would like to have a Bailey corollary, which is, I do not trust a man who has no sense of humor. I really believe that having a sense of humor is central to the Christian life. And if you know men who find it difficult to laugh at themselves, they have not begun to understand holiness. I think it's Muggeridge, either Muggeridge or Chesterton, who said that all of the great humorists have always been Christians. Because Christians are the ones who are able to admit the disparity between what they were made to be and what they actually are. If you ever read about humor, you'll see that nobody can quite figure it out. And one of the theories of humor is that humor is a way that we do mediate that tension. That's why we laugh when somebody stubs their toe, because he was made to not stub his toe. But then, look at it, he stubbed his toe. I was worried yesterday that my sort of chagrined laughter at a new couple in our church over the tragedy to their child uh, would be misunderstood by Jared. Jared is back here. And Jared is an excellent, excellent father. But this last week, one of his children broke both of her legs. And it was a perfect storm. And all of a sudden, you have a child who has two casts on her. And, and so I was kind of laughing at Jared, you know. Why? Well, not because I, I wanted to be cruel, but because... I saw myself so perfectly in the whole situation. And really, it's amazing we don't die when we're born. I'll never forget Jimmy Cuffey. And we didn't, weren't there when this happened, but Jimmy, who got his doctorate in astronomy from Harvard and has got his wife from the ranks of those seeking the same degree from the same institution, so Rita was a fellow... Uh, on a fellowship there at Harvard in astronomy. She'd gone to Radcliffe, the women's part back then. And uh, so then they had a baby. This disembodied brain married to a disembodied brain. If you knew Jimmy and Rita Cuffey, that's what they were. And Rita reports that when they got home with their first baby, they put it in the crib, and Jimmy looked at Rita, and he said, Rita, we're going to have to do everything for this baby. He can do nothing for himself.
Imagine, as you get older, you look at the people that God gives children to, and you're horrified. <laughs> and then it dawns on you what your parents thought <laughs> when you had a baby. When I was in seminary, I took a, uh, I took a cartoon. George Booth is a cartoonist in The New Yorker, and he's my favorite. And it's this cartoon of this man sitting on a park bench. He's old. He has his head on his cane on his hands. And he's looking at the ground. And he's a pathetic figure. And then the second frame has a woman in a halter top with a large you-know-what and a large you-know-what walking right in front of him. And his head is still on his cane, but his eyes are up. And then the third frame, the dog, the poor dog that was sitting next to him on the bench is 15 feet up in the air, and he's just completing a swing with his cane. And the seminarians were just scandalized that I had that up on the door of my apartment. They did not see anything funny about that at all. And it really did cause me to be concerned about the churches that they would serve. Because what it showed me was they had no self-awareness. They didn't even know themselves. They didn't know they kicked the dog when they can't have what they want. You know? In every church, there are people who are so proud that they're wicked. They can't laugh at themselves. They can't admit their temptations. And therefore, they can't fight their temptations because to fight your temptations, you have to take off your gloves. <laughs> you can't have on those rubber things that you use to wash the dishes. I don't think we've ever had a train during morning worship before. Isn't that interesting? I love trains. I love them. So, what does this have to do with our text today? Well, let's read it. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for me not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. Body. But the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to with... This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, think of the man with the dog. He's old, and there's a young woman in front of him, and so he hits the dog. And the dog wonders what he did to deserve that. That's funny. That's funny. It's very concrete, and it involves sex, touching, intimacy. And right away at the beginning of this text, I want you to understand that what you're seeing in Scripture is the Holy Spirit inspiring a shepherd of the sheep to be helpful. And so he's very specific. And you have to get over your scandal about that before you can begin to be improved by the text. So let's deal with the scandal for a second. You know how I always fantasize about each of you having the opportunity to just once, one day, one set of chores, morning or night, I don't care which one, to be there when a farmer milks his cows. Because the minute you see it just once, so many things of Scripture will become clear to you that were never clear before. One of the things is, if you go in the milk parlor with a good farmer, not a bad one, and there are a lot of bad farmers, but if you go in with a good one, one thing that farmer will do is he'll feel the breasts of the cow. You say, wait, wait, we don't call them breasts, we call them udders. Okay, fine, the udders, all right? And the reason he feels them, he takes his hand and he grabs them. And the reason he does this is to see if the cow has mastitis. Now, why does he care if the cow has mastitis? He cares because if the cow has mastitis, it's sick, and he has to give it an antibiotic. And if he gives it an antibiotic, and then he milks it with the antibiotic and puts the milk into the bulk tank, what happens? The entire bulk tank is emptied on the ground. It's dead. He has lost huge amounts of money. And so he has to watch to see whether or not that cow is sick, because if it's sick, it won't produce what his livelihood depends on. And if it's sick, he has to give it an antibiotic. If he gives it an antibiotic, then he has to make sure that he throws that milk out and doesn't put it in the bulk tank. So it doesn't contaminate what you get at the grocery store. All right? And so a good farmer knows what cows have a tendency to get mastitis. A good farmer, if he has a small number of cows, names them. If he has a large number of cows, numbers them. A good farmer will know the number of the cow that has a tendency to get mastitis. This is what it means to shepherd, because shepherd is to farm dairy cows. You know, we get so ethereal, so spiritual, that we forget that the word pastor is the word shepherd, is the word dairy farmer. And so, if you're going to have a pastor, an elder, an older woman, Titus 2 woman, who's helpful to you, they're going to feel your breast. They're going to grab it to see if you have mastitis. And you say, oh, come on, surely not. And I say, all right, all right, okay. 
not really. What they'll really do is ask you how often you're having sex. If you're single, they're asking whether you're being given over to immorality. And if you're married, they're asking whether you're being given over to immorality because they know if you're married and you're not having sex, you're being given over to immorality. And so they'll say to you, how often are you having sex with your wife? And you'll answer, well, fairly often. And then they'll say, no, 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 specifically. And you'll say, well, frequently. Usually it takes three questions. And then you say, how many times? And then they say, and they'll give you a number. This is what shepherds do with their sheep, with their cows, with their souls. This is what is done. And the reason it's done is that people who think they're so spiritual that they don't need to have sex almost never are spiritual, but they're like the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Miami. Where... The archbishop and, and the heads of the seminaries and everybody had all these sexual partners who they weren't married to of different sexes that they were keeping on the side. Why? Well, because as a religious organization, the Roman Catholic Church, made a decision many centuries ago that in order to be a pastor, you are going to have to completely abstain. You're going to have to take a vow of celibacy in order to be a shepherd. And so ever since then, what it's meant is that sexual immorality is rife among those people who are called the shepherd, the people of God. But don't look down your noses at the Roman Catholic organization, because the same thing is true in our church. We have people who refuse to marry and therefore are given over to sexual immorality. And we have people who are married who refuse to give their bodies to the authority of their partner and so are giving over their partner to sexual immorality and they're themselves given over to sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul knows this and so the Apostle Paul is helpful. Here's an idea. If you're going to be a pastor, be helpful. So I'm 57. Do you know how many times I've had adultery explained to me? by somebody telling me that their partner would not have sex with them. And you say, oh, that's just a justification. And I say, how do you know? Doesn't the Apostle Paul say it's better to marry than to burn? Doesn't the Apostle Paul say you have a duty? And you go, you know, that's the problem with you people. Duty. Haven't you ever seen while we were sleeping? Haven't you ever seen Sleepless in Seattle? Haven't you ever seen all those chick flicks? Don't you know it's about tenderness and mutual affection and romance and love? I say, uh-uh, it's about duty. <laughs> you need to do your duty. 
and you say, that's the problem with you people. You have such a gnarly kind of cynical kind of hopeless kind of earthy kind of faithless kind of low kind of guttural kind of you know animalistic view of sex i say uh uh-uh. uh you know what do the issues in love and tenderness and affection You say, well, it didn't do that for me. And I say, well, you know something? We can't control our partners. But our job is to obey God. That's our job. And the Bible says, take it back up, please. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, so we know that they wrote the Apostle Paul, and they asked him questions. Some of the things he dealt with in the letter, he dealt with because he'd heard through the grapevine. Some of the things because the church had written him asking. It's kind of encouraging to know that they still had some respect for him, that they actually wrote him a letter asking, right? Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What was going on was that you had in every church the melding, not the meshing. Meshing and melding are two different things. Melding is bloody process. Meshing is just kind of making sure it matches up. You had the melding of Gentiles and Jews, and it was a difficult thing because the Gentiles were Greek, and they were airy spirits. Now, what's an airy spirit? It's not spelled A-I-R-Y, but A-E-R-I-E. And what is an airy? An airy is way at the top of the mountains, up on the peaks, above the tree line, where you just have mists and vapors. All right? So the churches were filled with Gentiles, Greeks, who were airy spirits. They were above the common passions that bedogged other men. They were above sex. They were above food. They were above anything. They were airy spirits up at the heights with the mists and the vapors. Okay? Okay, And so these airy spirits looked down their noses at sex because sex was low and sort of animalistic and and dirty. And meanwhile, you had the Jews who they knew what God had done. God had made woman and man. And so in the Jewish world, if you weren't married as a man, by the time you were 20, you were a sinner and everybody knew you were a sinner. And so you have the melding of the Gentiles and the Jews, of the Greeks and the Jews. It was so bad among the Gentiles that Augustus, the emperor, started creating laws to try to deal with the fact that his empire was looking down on the very things that were the building block of any civilization, namely marriage and family life and childbearing. And so here the Gentiles are saying... We're above all this gross rock. And the Jews are saying, "Uh uh-uh, marriage is the honorable estate. And so they wrote him and they said, what do you think about having a man not touch a woman? And the Apostle Paul says what? He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Right? It's good. 
Now, why is it good? It's good because when a man doesn't touch a woman, as a Christian, he is then free to do what? He's free to pray. He's free to listen to God. And he's free to care for the poor and for others in the church, other brothers and sisters in Christ. He's free to be a father to the fatherless. That's why. Okay? Not free to masturbate in front of his computer screen. So let's not become airy spirits and have hyper-spiritual thoughts about what it means to say that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. This does not mean that you can become a narcissist on Facebook and then later... Do you understand me? There are men who are given the gift of celibacy who are called by God not to touch a woman. And that calling is not to a life of immoralities. And it's extremely unusual. But it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It's not bad. But does it follow that if it's good for a man not to touch a woman, that it's bad for a man to touch a woman? No, because he immediately goes on and says, but... In other words, this is an adversative, but because of immoralities. Now, whose immoralities? Mine, yours, our immoralities. But because of our immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman. Every man is to have his own wife. Every woman is to have her own husband. And so, yes, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of your sexual sin and my sexual sin and their sexual sin, every man is to have his own wife Every woman is to have her own husband. And here you have a helpful pastor who knows what the people are doing. He knows of the immoralities in the church, starting with the guy having his father's wife and marrying her. Do we remember what came in 1 Corinthians 5? All right. But because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Must. Not may. Not can. Not might. Must. And again, we run into this violation of our stupidity called romanticism. Oh. It's such a low way of speaking of that glorious institution called marital love. Must. The Apostle Paul is helpful. And he's inspired by the Holy Spirit in being helpful. And he says, you must. <laughs> must. Me? Yes, you. Must? Well, not may. And then, really, duty? Must and duty? You know, I don't like to think of going to bed with my wife as my duty, do you? Okay, honey. Let's fulfill our duty.
thank God that the Apostle Paul didn't write them and encourage them to have a, have, have a date night when they can show their affection for each other. The husband should take his wife out on a date and talk to her in the kitchen and, 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 and do the love language that he knows she has. And if you get the love language right and you get the kitchen talk right and she cooks the right meal and he doesn't smell, <laughs> you know, when the moon is in the second bar. What, how's that go? And the bar. How's that go? Then peace. How's that go? Peace is ever And it is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Age of Aquarius, Aquarius. And that's the Christian view of copulation. That's, you know, you got to have like the moon and the seventh sun, and you got to have Mars hanging over Jupiter, and you've got to have the, you know, and the love language and the, and the kitchen talk and the, you know. And if the Apostle Paul was writing a book today, can you imagine Zondervan publishing it? You know, do your duty. <laughs> you guys, let's be real. Let's be real. He smells and she smells. Okay? And that's without me going into more detail. And his jokes aren't funny. And the food she cooked was lousy. And there was no kitchen talk. And now they're going to bed. And he's back from a business trip, and it's time for her to do her duty. Okay? That's the truth. The husband must fulfill his duty. She's put on weight. How many times I've heard from men that they're not attracted to their wives after the baby because she's put on weight. Oh, man. I'll tell you, you want to see David and Stephen and me aggressive? Dare to say that in front of us. <laughs> Am I right, David? Am I right, Stephen? I once had the horrible work with my wife of sitting in our kitchen while a man told his wife he'd committed adultery. And he, we made him tell her. And I'll never forget him telling her it was because of her weight. And if I had been older, I think I would have punched him. I almost did punch him a year later. And instead, at the last minute, I punched my door instead with an elder present. I have no apology. Never apologize for that. And I find it easy to apologize for things I'm wrong in after a couple days. <laughs> I never apologize for that one. It 
it's very common for men to withhold sex from their wives. And it's wicked. You don't have a schedule that matches your wife's schedule. You don't like how she looks. And then, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And here, once again, what we're dealing with is sex, bodies. And again, do you understand how contrary to our culture this is to speak of it in terms of authority? Whoever thought of sexual intimacy as being a matter of authority? Whoever thought that when he pleasures his wife sexually, a man is submitting to her authority over his body? Nobody can help but comment here, as Calvin and everybody does, that this is the place in Scripture where absolute equivalency exists between the man and the woman. No place else, only here. When it comes to sex, he is under her authority. When it comes to sex, her body is his body, and his body is her body. One of the most wicked things of feminism is talking about marital rape. It's wicked. It is the nature of marriage that you give yourself to your spouse. And from the time you've taken your vows on, your body is her body, hers is yours. You're under her authority in your body. She is under your authority with her body. And you say, but what about headaches? And I say, what did you think the word authority meant? And you said, yeah, but I mean, we're talking migraines, I vomit. And I say, so like authority begins when you agree? Don't you remember that authority begins when you disagree? So sexual authority begins when you don't want to have sex. And you say, yeah, but it's not that I don't want to, I really want to, I just always have headaches. Okay, there are always ways of escaping the authority of God. But I'm not going to be complicit in your rebellion. I won't do it. You say, well, you know, I'm not going to take Viagra. I say, you give yourself to your wife. And you say, but I'm not able. I say, you are too able. And you go, well, be more specific. And I say, are you kidding me? The problem here is not me being more specific. The problem is that you're a rebel against the Holy Spirit. And once you make a commitment to do your duty to your wife, you will be able to do your duty to your wife. But instead, what we end up with is everybody who's an evangelical or Bible-believing Christian is squeamish and thinks that that's spirituality. Thinks it's spiritual to have devotions that cause you to be up after your husband goes to bed so that when you get to bed, he's asleep. But oh, the picture of you with your Bible praying. Oh, it's just wonderful. 
If only the other women of the church could see how spiritual I am. The Apostle Paul says, do your duty. How many of you, growing up, saw the complete disparity in bedtime between your mother and your father? Complete disparity. And you knew they didn't want to have sex with each other. What do you think it does to children to see that? We're not even talking about children, are we? Don't you think children have a privilege of seeing their father grab their mother's bottom? Isn't this a basic right of children? Christian children? Shouldn't they see their father sexually desiring their mother? Don't they have the privilege of being revulsed? Let me tell you, if you're born, that's where you came from. Hate to break it to you. But your mother and your father made whoopee. And their whoopee was fruitful. On my way here today, I went past, early in the morning, a field of cows. And in the field of cows were a ton of calves. And I thought, how have we gotten to the point where the church forgets that that's a blessing? How have we gotten to the point where our church is more unique than any other church simply because it has children? How have we gotten to that point? How have we gotten to the point where men, after they're married, are asking themselves whether they have not fallen into a less spiritual condition? How have we gotten to that point? Well, it's because we don't read the Bible. We're supposed to do our duty. We're supposed to, because of immoralities, have a wife, have a husband. And instead, what we have is a bunch of guys that are 20 and 22 and 25 and 28 and 30 and 35 and 40 who are unmarried and immoral narcissists. We have husbands who are not intimate with their wives. And they have the audacity of answering the question why by saying, I don't find her attractive. You know something I've learned over the years? What I've learned is that there is no connection between attractiveness of a husband and wife and attractiveness as the world sees it. There's no connection. And if you think through your life, you'll remember people, as I can remember people, who I thought were just plain homely, which means ugly. And then I got to know them and I fell in love. They were the most beautiful people in the world. I can remember, I've told you about Rita, right? Remember the first time I saw her and then I fell in love. I can remember Eddie, Eddie Hazlett. First time I saw Eddie Hazlett, I had been roped into going to visit him by uh, the grandfather. Uh, well, let's just say I'd gotten roped into going to see him. And as a pastor, I felt it was my duty. No romance, duty. 
And so I went downtown to Portage and found his apartment up above one of the stores. It was a one-room apartment. And I walked in. The floor was bare. He was lying on his bed, fully clothed, and the bed was bare. There were no sheets, so there was like this huge sort of black center to the mattress. And next to him was this huge container of cigarette butts and a tiny little black and white television on, on, a, on a crate. And he was lying, and, and beer cans everywhere, and he was lying there smoking, drinking, watching a little black and white TV in the middle of a mattress that was filthy. <laughs> and that was Eddie. And do you know, in a short time, he was living in our home. He was precious to us. He went through DTs in our basement twice. I don't believe he ever became a Christian. But we loved him. Don't tell me your wife isn't attractive to you. You're a rebel against God. You're a rebel. And the reason she isn't attractive to you is because you have a hyper-inflated view of yourself. And so you see sex is beneath you. You're going to live above it. You see that woman is beneath you. You see everybody. You see me right now is beneath you. Right now, you are condemning me for being as specific as I've been in the preaching. Do you know what Calvin says about this? Listen to this from Calvin. He says this. He says... Actually, that's here. I've got to find this. So give me a second, please. I will find it. Okay, here it is. Listen to this. <laughs> this is just priceless. Calvin says, so 500 years ago, a church father says this. He says, profane people, profane people might think that Paul is not modest enough in dealing like this with the intimacies of husband and wife. Indeed, that it is not worthy of the dignity of an apostle. Now, choose a thousand words to describe the error of thinking the apostle Paul should not be this specific. Not one of you would ever come up with the word profane to describe the people that think Paul's being too specific. Well, those people are profane. What you would say is those people are super spiritual, those people are, are like Gnostics, those people are, uh, I mean, you could come up with a thousand words, you'd never come up with the word profane. But what the Apostle Paul is doing is being a good shepherd, and what Calvin is pointing out is that the people who reject the specificity and directness of a good shepherd are people who are profane. 
It is not that they're more spiritual than the rest of us. That is always what they will try to convince us of. They will always try to convince us that only godless, dirty, sinful, cynical, low lives, all right, get down in the trenches and speak about the specifics of sexuality. The spiritual people are, are living on a different plane entirely. And when they make love, it's love they make. They don't do their duty. And I say, you will not begin to love until you do your duty. Do you understand this? You will not begin to be spiritual until you get married. And you say, wait, are you saying it's bad to not be married? No, I'm talking to you. I'm saying you will not begin to be holy until you're in bed doing your duty with your husband. You say, I don't have a husband. I say, for shame on your church. And you say, boy, I've never been at a church that's put this kind of pressure on people. Look at it. Look at it. Read it. Read the text. <laughs> if you don't want to commit sexual immorality, get a husband, get a wife. If you haven't been given the gift of celibacy, get a husband, get a wife. So if you come into a church and you sit in the office and tell us your marriage is bad, and we ask you how many times a week you have sex, don't be scandalized. This is what it means to be helpful. If you're single and you come in and talk to us about problems in your life, and we ask you whether or not you're doing you-know-what, be thankful. This is helpful. Now, one final thing I want to say about this, and there is a lot to say. No man should ever make a joke about women being a necessary evil. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Very interesting that Calvin talks about the fact that nowhere in, in, in Scripture does it command that we take a retreat from sex. I want to say one thing about the university. Many of you are young. And myself, my wife, our children, the churches we've been a part of, more and more it's become clear to me that the pursuit of education is largely the pursuit of riches and pride. And that evangelicals are willing to do anything to get a college education, at least, and preferably a professional degree for their children. And again and again and again, it's become completely clear to us that this includes sexual immorality being common with their children. Some, somehow, somewhere, at some point, somebody has to say the truth, which is, artificially removing 
huge percentage of our population and putting them in a hothouse environment where the entire faculty promotes sexual immorality. Well, not the entire. We do have a couple here. All right? Okay? And, and having no chaperones, <laughs> you know? At some point, you would think that somehow, somebody would actually see what's going on with college degrees and would say maybe Christians should think a little differently. Just a little, <laughs> you know? And should think to themselves, if my son needs a college degree, he can get them when he's married. But oh no, college degree, it used to be cleanliness was next to godliness, now a college degree in pursuit of excellence is next to godliness. And if it, it came between godliness and a college degree, I'm not sure which we'd pick. And so what we do is we put off and we put off and we put off marriage. And we forget about that because of immoralities, each man should have his own wife. And we know that her period started when she was, what, 13? And we know that he began to take the Sears Roebuck catalog into his room when he was 14. And we just cultivate ignorance. And we make them go out and, and do their, their community service. And we begin to fill in their resume. <laughs> you know, well, she worked at the community, the community kitchen. And she's had the AP classes. <laughs> And now she's, she, she did pretty well on her PSAT. And now she's, you know, and the whole thrust of most of the homes that we grew up in was socioeconomic and pride. And our parents were unbelievably specific and helpful when it came to academics and musical instruments and sports, and somehow completely oblivious when it came to sexual purity. Somehow, all those skills they demonstrated everywhere else in our lives vanished when it came to sexual purity and holiness. Come on, guys. Here's an idea. Let's have an agreement. And let's agree that because of immoralities, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Eh? And then let's do our duty to one another. I mean, is that such a radical proposal? Can we please have that take precedence over money and status and wealth? <laughs> come on, come on, say yes. Oh, yeah! <laughs> Wouldn't that be, like, liberating... Wouldn't it be wonderful for our children to grow up knowing that their parents were more concerned about sexual purity than they were their SAT scores? <laughs> now you know I, I'm really insane. Right? Everybody agree, I am really insane, right? But here, c come on, be honest. Come on, be honest. 
but you know, I'm helpful. I think I'm helpful. Okay. I'm over. It's done. It's time. <laughs>